If you have Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Isaiah. Um, as Pastor Barry is getting us to know, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, it's a large book, the book of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the seats in front of you, and you can pull one of them out, and you can find your way through it. Isaiah, as I say, it's a large book. Um, and uh, look for Isaiah 52 or 53. We'll be just working our way through a portion of um, both of those uh, chapters uh, today. As we come to the Word of God uh, today, I, if you're just here for the first time or maybe you've been here for the last two or three weeks, we've been considering texts of the Bible which are maybe not traditional Christmas texts, but I believe are um, very central to what Christmas is all about. Because one of the central themes of Christmas is the incarnation. And when we use that word incarnation, what we simply mean is that God the Son took on human flesh. He incarnated himself in human flesh. He became like one of us with flesh and blood and bones. And we're looking at, well, why was that necessary? Why was it important that Jesus Christ take on flesh? What did he accomplish through his humanity? And certainly one of the great themes that we can talk about what he accomplished through his humanity, and I think one of the major ones, is it's a great rescue um, of humankind. And we might think of Christmas then as God's search and rescue mission for humanity. We were rescued from our rejection of God. We are rescued for relationship with God. And we are rescued by the death of God. Christmas is really about a grand rescue mission. And so when we think of Christmas in terms of a rescue, then we begin to think and understand that true joy is not found in getting to Christmas. Neither is it found in getting through Christmas, but it is actually in getting Christmas and in understanding why it is that Jesus came to earth. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, well, not quite that far away. But a long time ago, about 2,000 years ago to be precise, another man, an Ethiopian, was reading out loud the scriptures. And they read out loud in those days because it aided memory and it helped fix in a person's memory the things that one was reading. And he was reading this text from Isaiah that we're going to look at in a few moments. But he didn't understand what he was reading, he was confused. And he wanted to know. And the story describes this in the book of Acts, this particular situation. It says, There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come down to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, Go and join the chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and he said, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip up to him to sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus. 
beginning from that scripture. The Old Testament reveals scripture to us. And I want to trace the path that this Philip might have taken as he introduced this Ethiopian to Jesus as he's described in Isaiah 53. We want to look at the good news today and consider who is this prophet talking about and why is the answer to that question such good news for us? And I hope by the time that we are finished this morning, you will understand how it is that Philip came up with Jesus and why that is the answer to our need for such good news. I want to see how, prophet, how, how Philip could say that the prophet was talking about Jesus, even though this prophet was writing 800 years before that event took place. So 2,800 years ago, Isaiah was written down. And then I want us to see why the prophet is saying that what he's saying about Jesus is such good news for us. The whole text then of what this Ethiopian was reading is called the Servant Song. It's the fourth Servant Song of Isaiah. It's by far the most well-known of them all, and it begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And there be, uh, as, as the prophet begins writing this down, uh, he begins with this exaltation of the servant, which is a strange place to begin, but nonetheless... He describes the destination of this servant, his exaltation. In verse 13 of chapter 52, he begins writing, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall set their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is this servant that God is talking about? And why will he be exalted? Who is this that God is referring to? That's the question that the Ethiopian was asking Philip. Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Who is this servant? And why will he be lifted up and exalted so high? Well, it could have originally been thought to point to the nation of Israel. But we know that as a nation, she failed in her calling. She rebelled against God and she refused to honor him by being a light to the nations. So if this servant is not Israel, then who? Well, the answer seems to be that God will now look to one individual within the nation, one individual who will be faithful to him, one individual who, do, who will do the work that God has called him to do, first to bring Israel back to himself, and then to be a light to the Gentiles or the rest of the world. And so God leads the prophet to write about this one, this suffering servant. And he will be exalted because as our text says here, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And therefore he will be exalted high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Why begin with such a glorious figure? Why start with the conclusion of the path? Why start with the end of this suffering servant's life? Why begin with an acknowledgement of his wise actions? Well, wisdom is simply a way of saying that his wise actions demonstrated that he knew exactly what needed to be done in order to fulfill God's purposes for him. And he lived that out in his life. And when he accomplished everything that God had asked of him, everything that God had called him to, he would be raised. I think that's a reference to the resurrection. And he will be lifted up. I believe that's a reference to the ascension of Christ into heaven. And he will be exalted. That means, as we sang, he will be on his throne 
in heaven above. It is a tremendous exaltation of this servant who acted wisely. But why state the conclusion first? Why begin with his exaltation when we know what may be coming? Why does he start at the end? Well, I think in part because the path of wisdom that this suffering servant followed that led to his exaltation was so jarring that many were astonished at him. His description is described as being marred beyond any human semblance. And he would be beaten, we understand, almost beyond any human recognition. It was as if many who saw him not only asked, is this he? But is this human? Because he was so harmed and disfigured by what he was to do. And if we didn't have the conclusion of his exaltation rattling around in our heads and in our brain, we might never stay there long enough to hear how he got to his exaltation. And so wrapped up in the conclusion is a glimpse, a glimpse of this path to exaltation, which results in the purification or the sprinkling of the nations. I think this is what makes his exaltation all the more stunning. And the, the, the prophet describes here as kings being silenced. They didn't know what to say. It's like as they considered this, their jaws dropped. Who knew something of this kind of glory? They will look on in awe because they are seeing something of, of a path to glory that they know nothing of, that they've never experienced. They are born into glory. They are born exalted. They are born majestic by all people. And now they're reading about this path of humiliation and suffering and affliction that leads to such exaltation. This Lord's servant will be exalted because somehow his suffering will bring about salvation for the nations. It sums up what Paul writes in Philippians that he took on the form of a servant becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. And then at the end of Philippians it says and God exalted him above every other name. It's the same exaltation that Matthew describes as Jesus comes back to earth as the glorious son of man. And it says he will come in all of his glory with his holy angels with him. That's where we end up. But how do we get there? What I want you to do is heed the invitation, I think, that's in this particular portion of scripture. To look. Look behind the wisdom of this servant. Consider the wisdom of his actions and how it applies to you to look beyond the surface of what he is described of and his marring and the, the, the way that he was disfigured. Look be, I, behind that and see why that was necessary and how that led to his exaltation. And so Philip begins, I'm sure, describing to the Ethiopian the path of humiliation and he starts with the birth and the life of this particular servant. In verse 1 of chapter 53, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As we think about the path of humiliation... One of the things that jumps out right away to us is it's a path of neglect. No one would accept that this was the way of God to salvation. They couldn't see God. They couldn't see what God, the arm of the Lord, was doing. They didn't believe it. 
They had different expectations, different aspirations of what a Messiah or a Savior would look like. He didn't look the part, and so they rejected him. There was nothing known about his humanity. He wasn't uh, dressed as a king. He didn't act like a a king. He wasn't uh, certainly the kings that they experienced in their day-to-day lives. He was a tender shoot. It's a description of him. That's an unwanted sucker that often grows out the bottom of a tree, and it's what's cut off when the tree is pruned. And does anything come out of dry ground? Above all that, he wasn't attractive. He was not the one that we would cozy up to because of his good looks. He wasn't the popular one. Rather, his was a lonely life. He's described as being despised and rejected. We wouldn't and we didn't give him the time of day just because of how he looked. Why is it that we treat people so quickly who we deem lower than us or those that don't meet our expectations as not worthy of listening to or of not worthy of giving the time of day to? It's funny, as I was reflecting on this, and we had an occasion to be talking about Bethlehem Walk a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it, we came up with um, talking about the parking lot and how being a parking lot attendant was one of the most difficult and sometimes humiliating jobs of Bethlehem Walk. Because for some reason, when you're dressed up in your gloves and your hat and your face is covered and um, uh, people come in, there's expectations of them that where they want to park and how they want to park and when they're going to get there. And they treat the parking attendants like dirt. And I, I don't understand that fully. Um, they just want to do what they want to do and go what they want to do. And somehow that's what they did to Jesus. They looked at him and thought, who is he? What has he got to offer me? And they rejected him. We need to learn not to judge a book by its cover. We need to ask ourselves, why are we full of so much prejudice? And we need to remind ourselves how so often we are so wrong when we make those judgments about other people. And let me say this to all of us that are here today. There is no greater place to err in judgment than in considering Jesus Christ and coming to the wrong conclusion about who he is and what he came to do. And so not only is there an invitation for us to look deeper, but I want to ask you today, before you dismiss Jesus out of hand, before you um, take into account only the things that you've read about him, the things that you've heard about him, the presuppositions that you've arrived at without really any knowledge of what the Bible actually says about him, before you dismiss Jesus out of hand, not only listen a little bit carefully as we continue through this morning, but look at his character. Look at his person. Consider his life as the Bible describes it. Consider what it is that he came to do and what he did. And then maybe pray something like this. Oh, Father. Oh, God, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Ask God to open your eyes, to reveal why you have such an unbelief and to point you to who Christ really is. So Philip explained to the Ethiopian the path of humiliation. I think he also explained to him the path of submission or substitution, sorry, that involves suffering and sorrow. Starting at verse 4 in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's an extraordinary concept contained in those verses. And it's actually not a concept. It's a reality. And that is of substitution. That his condition was for our benefit. That he bore our griefs that he carried our sorrows, that he accepted our burden as his own, that his suffering was for us and in our place. He substituted himself for us. He said, I will stand in for Paul. But we didn't see it that way. And we still don't see it that way today. In those days, and I think some days, they, they look at Jesus, well, he just got what he deserved. There must have been something in his life. There must have been something that he done because nobody experiences that kind of stuff from the hand of God that doesn't deserve it. And we make those same kind of judgments today, loved ones. We look at somebody whose life is full of suffering, somebody whose life is full of difficulty, who's full of pain and sorrow, and we say, well, God must be punishing them for something. Otherwise, their life wouldn't be going so bad. And then by the same token, we look at somebody whose life is going well and they seem to have the world by the tail and we say, wow, God is really blessing them. And we get it all mixed up. And they came to the wrong conclusions about Jesus because of his suffering. They had been right about who was striking him. It was God who was striking him. They had just been wrong about why God was striking him. Notice I hope you notice these words in there. You see the idea of substitution behind them. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our rebellion, all was laid on him. Again, he was suffering in our place. He took our pain. He took our punishment. He took what was due us because of our sin. And notice the punishment, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. That's all part of the penalty that was due us for our sin and for our rebellion and our rejection of God. He took upon himself the punishment that was due us. He died in our place because of what he did. Then what do we receive? We receive healing and are made whole. It's an incredible substitution. He takes all of the negative. He takes all of the pain. He takes all of the punishment and we get all of the reward. We are healed and we are made whole. Unless we understand about sin, unless we come to grips with sin, unless we consider that concept and say, you know, I think there's something to that. And in fact, I actually think I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it and it plagues me all the time. Unless we come to that conclusion, this passage won't be good news to you. Unless we come to grips with the depth of our sin and the way that it has estranged us from God, this passage won't mean anything to us. But it was because of our iniquities that life was crushed out of him. He was pierced or stabbed through because of our sins. Every arrow of divine judgment that was meant for me was redirected at, at Christ. All of those arrows converged in on him. He took our wounds and what did we receive? We received the blessing of obedience and righteousness. It's astonishing to think 
that he would do that for people like us. This is the heart of this servant song. It's the reason that we can be purified, sprinkled, and cleansed. It's because Jesus Christ stepped in for us. Jesus Christ substituted himself for us. Jesus Christ, man in flesh, took my place, who was also of flesh. And it's necessary for all of us because as the prophet says, all we. There's no exceptions. There's nobody that's outside of this. There's nobody, no matter how good you might think yourself to be. And there are some good people, but everyone falls short of the glory of God. Every one of us, the human race, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. We have turned deliberately away from God. We have rejected him. We have turned away from his commandments. We have turned away from his tug at our life. Every one of us has done what we wanted to do, regardless of what God wanted us to do. And yet Christ bore everything that we deserved to bear. So Philip must have explained to him something of the substitution of Christ. Not only humiliation, but the substitution. I think he probably also explained something of the path of affliction. Really, briefly, it says, starting in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant didn't deserve this. Any of it. But he didn't resist it either. The extraordinary thing about Jesus is that he gave up his life. He willingly followed the Father, becoming obedient even to the point of death. It's an extraordinary trust, really, that he had in his heavenly Father. That he set aside his deity and he accepted full humanity and he trusted fully in his Father, whatever that might mean. It says, Peter, Peter says of them that he entrusted himself to his faithful creator. That's an extraordinary comment. He basically said, not my will, but your will be done, Father, whatever that path might be. It was a path of obedience, as I already mentioned, obedience even unto the point of death. And it was full of injustice. Many of us here today have experienced probably a measure of injustice in one way or another, and we don't like it. It's, not, it's, not, it's no fun to be on the receiving end of injustice. But somewhere along the line, most of us do deserve justice that we don't get. Jesus deserved no, nothing that happened to him. His was complete Injustice from the beginning of his trial to the end of his trial to his death. And we wonder, how could people have been so wrong about him? How could such a travesty of justice taken place? How could Jesus have remained silent? How could he not have spoken up? How could he not have defended himself? Well, there's a purpose in obedience that we don't always know. The Father knows, but we don't know. 
And Peter describes it. Uh, this is part of, I think, what Philip might have explained to the Ethiopian. It's what Peter understood. He says, you were called to this. He's talking about Christians who are suffering. Now he's describing us. In this Isaiah 53 passage, it's something for you and I to learn. He says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. You who are suffering today in justice, Christ is your example. You who are falsely accused, terribly maligned, brunt of somebody else's hatred and evil, Christ is your example so that you should follow in his footsteps. He didn't commit any sin. Deceit wasn't found in his mouth. When he reviled, he didn't revile in turn. When suffering, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to one who judges justly. There's something profound about that. It's having such a confidence in your heavenly father that you can say, God, I don't get this. I don't like this. It's not fair. I can't hardly keep my mouth shut, but I know you are the just judge. And I entrust myself to you. But there's also a rescue here. Peter goes on and he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness and by his wounding you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. So it's a path of humiliation. It's a path of substitution. It's a path of affliction. It's also a path of satisfaction. And by that, I simply mean that God was pleased with and accepted the sacrifice of this suffering servant. Starting at verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice in there twice, the prophet refers to the will of the Lord. It's difficult to wrap our heads around this, It was the will of the, of the Lord to crush him. And it was the will of the Lord that he should prosper in his hand. How do you make sense of that? It's all a mess. It all seems to have backfired. It all seems to be such a trauma and such a tragedy. Jesus, the faithful servant, is about to be crucified like a criminal in the middle of two criminals on a garbage heap outside of the city of Jerusalem. He's betrayed, he's denied, he's deserted, he's spat upon, he's flogged, he's demeaned. How is it possible for the purpose of God to be seen in the crushing of the suffering servant? Somehow it's just extraordinary, but somehow in the manifold wisdom of God, it becomes clear to us. Because through the servant's suffering, God is able then to be both just and the justifier of all those who put their trust in him. Understand what that's saying? He is just because God just doesn't sweep our stuff under the table. He can't just sweep stuff under the table and say, that's gone, can't see it. 
under the carpet because you're going to trip over it. You're going to bump over it. It's always going to be there. You've got to remove it. And God deals with the punishment that is due us by punishing Christ. And so he's just. There is no injustice in God's treatment of his son. It was the will of God to crush him. But because the justice of God was fully spent on Jesus Christ, then God can justify us as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And he can accept us because all of the penalty for our sins has been paid in Jesus Christ. This is the will of God. It was the will of God to crush him. It's an incredible offering because it says he shall see his offspring. I don't know if you were here two weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 3.15 where it talks about the different crushings and the offspring of the woman. I think these are references that take us back there. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he saw his offspring. He saw those who would come to faith in the Father. He saw um, his spiritual brothers and sisters, the offspring of the woman that would be of the seed of the woman that would be the offspring of God. Oh, it's true that Christ never married. It's true that he never had children. But he has a host of spiritual offspring that nobody can number of men and women, boys and girls all around the world. I want you to know something also here. That the death of the Christ was not, or the death of Christ on the cross was not a roll of the dice, so to speak. It's not like as Christ was dying on the cross, he was thinking, I hope somebody believes. I hope there's some people around this world who will put their trust in me. Father, what are we going to do if nobody puts their trust in me? Do you believe that? Do you you believe that it was just sort of he died and there was just this big hope, well, I hope this works? Absolutely not. It was the will of God to have his plan prosper, to have those names that were written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, that they would be saved through the sure and certain death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That's what it means, I think, of Jesus as he was dying to see his offspring. He knew the Father's plan to save from the foundation of the world. He had no doubt at what his death would accomplish and who it would accomplish saving faith in. So he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among transgressors. A vivid summary of how his life ended. But then another return to his exaltation where it says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. What's that? That's the celebration. That's the reward of what he accomplished in his death and his resurrection. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. That's why God exalted him far above any other name. Think about this. All of us. We need to be reminded there is nothing left for any of us to do. Christ has done it all. You don't have to buy your way back to God. You don't have to earn your way back to God. You don't have to be born in the right family to come back to God. All you have to do is look to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. And so it was from these words that Philip spoke to the Ethiopian and pointed him to Jesus, who was the good news contained in the prophet Isaiah. Philip told the good news about Jesus, that the Lord's servant would be exalted because 
a suffering for us and in our place would bring us salvation. And the, the Ethiopian accepted the good news. Have you? Will you? Are you willing to stake your eternity on rejecting Christ? He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that can bring you peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, you can be made whole. What a path. Not what we expect, but look at where it leads to glory and exaltation. Loved ones, this is Christmas. It really is. Isaiah 53 is behind the hymns that the angels sang to the shepherds in the fields when they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. It would just take 33 years to see how peace would come to those with whom God was pleased. If today you are looking for, in Jesus Christ, tall, dark, and handsome, Jesus is not your man. But if you are looking for a suffering servant and an exalted king, Jesus is your man. Will you trust him today?